watch the county commissioners meeting live on our QAC website at www.qac.org slash live or on QAC TV's television channel, Atlantic Broadband Channel 7. To maintain social distancing, we will be restricting uh, tonight's meeting to invited presenters. If you have any respiratory symptoms such as fever, cough, and or shortness of breath, please refrain from attending the meeting and notify a health care provider. We are screening all meeting participants prior to entering the building. Pressing public comment is still encouraged. Citizens can join the live Zoom meeting by going to www.qac.org slash public comment or citizens may e email comments to public comment at qac.org or citizens can leave voicemail comments by calling 443-262-4601 during our meeting. We will accept comments up until approximately 6 p.m. Comments received will be read during the press and public comment period on this evening's agenda. Citizens may also submit written testimony to the county commissioners by mail at 107 North Liberty Street, Centerville, Maryland, 21617, or by email to QAC commissioners and administrator at qac.org. We will now stand and be led in the Pledge of Allegiance by Commission President Jim Moran. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. If you could remain standing for a moment of silence for our nation after the events of the last two weeks, I uh, hope and pray for some civility and a lot less screaming and yelling. Thank you very much. All right, thank you, Commissioners. We held a closed session under Section 3-305B, Paragraph 1 of the General Provisions Article to discuss boards and commissions and personnel. And I believe we did reach some consensus on three boards and commission appointments that we can go through now, if you like, Commissioners. Okay. First was uh, the Bay Bridge Advisory Committee. All right, I'm moving. Airport. Excuse me. You're right. Excuse me. Bay Bridge Airport Advisory right. Committee. There you go. Excuse me. I'm going to say you threw us in a lot of order. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> I move to reappoint uh, John Friel, Jason Jarvey, and newly appoint John Kirby. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. All right. Thank you, Commissioners. Next, we had the Department of Emergency Services Advisory Board, otherwise known as DSAC. We have one uh, vacancy. Uh, I'm moved to appoint Scott Swoboda to the uh, DSAC board. Second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. I know we're supposed to read. So. <laughs> all right, thank you, Commissioners. And uh, lastly, we have the Housing Authority Board of Commissioners. We have uh, actually two vacancies to appoint to that board. One is a backfill and one is a new appointment for a new term. All right. I move to appoint uh, Judy Kropfelder uh, to the Housing Authority Board to begin July 1st, 2020 and to end June 30th, 2025. 
and I move to um, appoint Mike Arntz to fill the vacancy of the um, seat that is going to be expiring on June 30th, 2024, and that position is to uh, begin immediately since it is a current opening. Second. Second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. There we go. All right. Thank you, Commissioners. That brings us to today's agenda. Uh, today's agenda for our meeting June 9th, 2020, and the regular minutes from your May 26th meeting, the minutes from your June 2nd budget work session, along with the Sanitary Commission meeting minutes uh, from your May 12th meeting were distributed uh, electronically for your review. Do we have any additions and or corrections? Motion to approve. Second. All in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? There we go. All right. Thank you, Commissioners. That brings us to new business, and first up, we have the Department of Public Works, and I think there's a few of those folks out there. So if you want to flip back to tab number two, and the DPW can run through their agenda. First up, we have uh, Steve Cahoon, our public facilities planner, and he's going to talk about the uh, Baltimore Metropolitan Council BMC agreement. This is an annual agreement we do each year with the BMC, and take it away, Steve. Thank you very much. Um, every year the county commissioners enter into a contract with the Baltimore Metropolitan Council. Um, it's based on a specific dollar amount that changes from year to year, and that's the reason we go through it each year. Um, also, it identifies the work program for the upcoming year. A lot of the work we do for and with the BMC is providing uh, demographic information, local knowledge, local information for transportation modeling that they work into a, a regional model. Um, and then there are specific consultant uh, projects that they work on for the region. Um, this year, the total budget um, is $63,525. 80% of that is covered by the BMC, um, which is $50,820. And then we do an in-kind match of approximately $12,700, um, and that's through the work of staff with the Baltimore Metropolitan Council. Um, this is a similar contract to what we've signed each year. Uh, we've been a member with the BMC, and uh, Pat Thompson has reviewed and, and signed the contract. I move that we approve and sign a unified planning work program agreement with the Baltimore Metropolitan Council for FY 2021. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Question. Um, the, uh, are all the counties in the state of Maryland eligible for to join this? No. It's um, a specific makeup of county okay. counties. Um, the urbanized area that starts in Baltimore City that moves out from Baltimore City, okay. which includes um, the surrounding counties, Baltimore County, Howard County, Carroll County, Queen Anne's County, um, are all made up of the Baltimore Metropolitan Council and okay. the Baltimore Regional Transportation Board. As you get closer to D.C., Montgomery, P.G. counties, they're in a different metropolitan planning organization. Okay. And then up, up to the uh, northeast, uh, Cecil County is actually in a metropolitan planning organization with Philadelphia. So we're the only county on the midshore? Yes, we are. Okay. Uh, under this MPO, Salisbury has its own metropolitan planning organization, which includes the city of Salisbury and into Delaware. And that's based on population. Perfect. Thank you. Okay, we're moving to approve and sign a unified planning work program agreement with the Baltimore Metropolitan Council for FY 2021. All those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. 
Okay, next on the agenda is House Bill 56. Uh, this is item two on page 15, if you're yeah. in your books there. That's the, I'm sorry. You all are well aware uh, and watch this go through the legislative session. This establishes the Baybridge um, Advisor um, Bay Bridge Reconstruction Advisory Group in legislation. Um, over the last 10 years or so, it's been a, a, a working group and a committee, but it has not been established in legislation. This bill does establish it uh, in, in law and outlines the membership and who appoints the membership. Um, it's a citizen board where six members are appointed by the governor, two members are appointed by you as the Queen Anne's County Commissioners, and two members are appointed by Anne Arundel County. Um, at this point, um, the bill is in effect. Um, it was approved as emergency legislation. Um, the governor has moved forward and has six citizen members, uh, which he's looking at appointing. Um, the county commissioners have a role of, of appointing two commissioners, and then Anne Arundel County have, has the same. Um, in the past, uh, we've had a, a commissioner sit on the BRAG. Commissioner Wilson has been our uh, local liaison member to that committee. Um, uh, the six members that have been appointed or put, I think, towards the governor, um, if, you, if you recall, the BRAG went through a vetting process, an application process over the last year, um, where applications were accepted, they were processed, and um, the members were chosen. That going through a similar process at the governor's office with this bill, and it wouldn't surprise me if we saw a very similar makeup or recommended members um, at the state level. Um, so just wanted to bring this to your attention. Um, we can appoint a county commissioner as a, as a liaison member, um, but it's going to be pr it's primarily made up of a, uh, a it's primarily a citizen board as it has been. So let me ask a question of you principally, but anyone else might have an answer. When this group was redesignated by the legislature, were they, were, was it given any additional powers or is it just kind of a power pot for? The, um, the specific responsibilities are outlined in the bill, and there, there's three of them listed there. Um, it's assessing potential concerns about activity relating to the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, educating um, the general public about activity relating to the Bay Bridge, and work collaboratively with the authority to provide pertinent related traffic and customer service on customer service issues. So I think the role is pretty similar. Um, I don't know that they've well, been I mean, given more weight. The fact was that over time, it was thought by the members of the advisory commission that they had some function in advising the bridge. But later, that turned out to be no. It was just a way of advising the public through that board. Has that capacity to, to assert any authority been upped? You see the point I'm making. <clears throat> it seems that the role has been spelled out to be very similar as it has been in the past. I mean, uh, uh, other people do. Does this commission have any budget or any anything it's working with particularly? The, the um, outlined in this bill, this this commi um, county commissioner's role is to appoint members, appoint two members. No, I'm asking: Is this body, when it comes into existence, does it have any budget or any? Uh, no. It, it works through um, 
It was set up to work through MDOT, and the secretary of MDOT is the chairman of the commission of the board, um, as and the executive director of MDTA is um, on the board, as well as the um, SHA administrator. So they are members of the board, and I they would work through their departments for whatever budget it would would be necessary for this board. I mean, the reason I ask this question is. Right now, Queen Anne's County is eating the whole expense of the traffic study. I think that's something that, frankly, the, the state highway authority should have taken. That's a fair statement. Mm-hmm. What the hell? Yeah, we we'd have asked in the uh, MDOT priority letter, we have asked them for assistance last year and again this year, and we'll see. <laughs> we have requested. We will continue to ask for that assistance. Yes. All right. Thank you, sir. Okay, so no action on this one. This is just informational that uh, in the near future. If the uh, commissioners wish to make any appointments, you can do so, but we'd like to do that either this meeting or next meeting because this does start in uh, July and it was emergency, so. I'd like to make a motion to appoint Commissioner Wilson and Commissioner Moran. Second. The advisory board. We have a motion and a second. Any other discussion? And the reason I say that, and just to clarify why I'm putting two commissioners, is because, I, first off, I think there needs to be some power put on this board, because um, I think in the past the citizen side has, has been rather, I don't want to say lackadaisical, but really hasn't had any teeth. And I think with at least some uh, political clout on the board, I think maybe we can get some teeth into this thing. And the governor's already appointing three citizens, and this way we'll have at least one commissioner there every time to bring the information back to us. So that's my thinking behind it. And I think it's good to help set the tone with this organization starting off to have the commissioners there to Absolutely. make sure that the people of Queens County, their voices are loudly heard. And so Jim and Steve, you were probably the two loudest we got. So <laughs> There you go. And the most knowledgeable at this point about everything that's yeah. gone on over the last five or six years with it. So it's good to have that historical knowledge on a board like that. Okay. We have a motion and a second. Any further discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. Okay, we will send a letter to the governor's appointment office as well as Secretary Slater. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Okay, commissioners, um, moving on with public works, item number three on page 23. We have the Kent Island Branch Library Expansion and Renovation Contract Award. And uh, as they say, nothing's ever simple, but uh, I think Mr. Edgar's (laughs) here, and I believe our Library manager's here. She's sitting on this one today. Janet Salazar, welcome, both of you. Thank you. And as you can see, we had a great turnout on the bids, but um, we do have a tie. Right. So, so, uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll start by the motion first. I okay, move to the award motion. the Kent Island Library Expansion and Renovation Construction Contract to Plano Cooden LLC of Baltimore, Maryland, in the amount of seven hundred seven million two hundred fifty-five thousand or Towson Mechanical Incorporated of Parksville, Maryland, in the amount of $7,117,000. Whichever having been the successful in drawing lots and authorize a director of public works to issue the notice of award and execute the contract on behalf of the county commissioners. And there's two, two motions. Second. Okay, yeah, well, we've got another motion that goes with this. I also move that the letter of certification necessary to secure construction funding through the Maryland County Public Library Capital Grants Program in fiscal year 2021 for the expansion and renovation of the Kent Island Branch Library be signed and provided by the Maryland State Library. And that's the end of that. Second. 
So we have a motion and a second. Discussion. Turning the floor to you. Go ahead and give us, give us the breakdown of the tie, how the tie gets the whole nine and, and also just remind the people who are watching here uh, how much funding is from the state that if we don't go forward with it, we're going to lose. So people have sort of that as a framework on this. Understood. Well, uh, as Todd alluded, uh, congratulations. You have the distinct honor of getting to make the decision tonight as to how you want to address uh, the matter of the, the tide. Uh, really unbelievable. Um, we did, uh, we canvassed other counties throughout the state to determine what they do in situations such as this, and we uh, consulted with uh, the county attorney regarding the options on handling this matter, and uh, ultimately identified three practical options for addressing the matter of the, of the tide bids. Uh, in the memo there, put them in there, and I'll generally uh, address them and open it to any questions you have. Uh, the first option, as you may recall, uh, through, through the process of design and putting together the bid documents, we incorporated a lot of value engineering to keep the costs in check, as well as we incorporated some bid alternates and bid deductions into the bid documents in the event that the prices came in higher than we wanted, we would have the ability to exclude certain non-critical or other components of the work could, could be done at a later date. Um, those bid alternates arguably may have complicated this a little bit in that it gives you the first option. The first option would be one of understanding that the bid documents prescribe awarding based on the total base bid, which is basically the majority of the project, excepting a few of the alternates. We have the two bidders who came in dead tie on that. One option would be, since they are both the lowest responsible and responsive bidders, being that we are going to proceed with the four alternates because they're well within the budget, the replacement of windows and roof and such, the one contractor, uh, TMI, when you take into account their alternates, they are, they're, they're, the additional cost of the contract would be about uh, $419,000. Whereas Plano Cowden, their cost for those alternates is $557,000, a difference of approximately $138,000. Now, keeping in mind that the project is funded pretty close to 50% by the state, so the net impact to the county would be in the range of about $69,000 county share. So uh, one option then would be to recognizing that between the two for the total package, TMI would be cheaper. You could elect to award the, pro the project to them. Now the county attorney recommends against this approach because the basis of award says nothing about alternates or other criteria like that being considered as a measure by which we determine who has the low bid. According to the bid documents, they both tied. Um, so it could enter into a bid protest for the one contractor who came in higher saying that's not part of the equation. Similarly, there are other bidders that could protest as well. The concern with a protest is it could protract and, and delay. Delay, the con delay the project potentially quite substantially. So the county attorney recommends against that. The uh, second option would be to award the contract based on one of the two bidders drawing lots. 
In other words, flipping a coin or really our recommendation is going to be picking a card. Whoever has the highest hand, single card, high card, ace is high, whoever will have a prescribed process for that, that contractor would get the job. Um, the implication with that is that there is a slight chance that one or the other of the bidders could protest that, but that's very unlikely because they, in speaking with them both, they both seem very amenable to this as a very fair and equitable approach to breaking the tie between two tied bidders. Um, I don't like number three. What's that? I don't like number and three. We don't like number three either. <laughs> we reject all bids and re-advertise. <laughs> While on the surface, one may think that, hey, you get a, we could potentially get a lower cost. Our experience has usually been, I mean, sometimes it could be higher, but oftentimes if it is lower, it, it's, it's an irresponsible bid. You have somebody that was up here and he does what he can to, to get in low and he tries to make up for it through the duration of the project. Sure. And that would also add several weeks to this process as well. So as a result, we recommend uh, option number two, which is going to be awarding on the basis of drawing lots between the two tied bids. So my recommendation, if, if, if you use a deck of cards that it's a brand new deck that you peel off the cellophane. Correct. Right? Get rid of right. the jokers. Spread it out on the table. And, and then do you think for legal reasons it's necessary to document it somehow or, or have witnesses or... We have, uh, we have prepared a one-page document which describes what that process would be, exactly as you've described, a deck of cards sealed in the original wrapping, which we will present publicly to the two bidders who can come in person with um, observers on their side as well. They're going to fly in somebody from Vegas, the world's top, <laughs> top dealer from Vegas, to go through it and make sure. Do it all right and proper, absolutely. <laughs> So they'll be able to observe opening the cards. The, we will shuffle them. It, they'll get to inspect them both. They'll get to uh, we'll shuffle the deck seven times, which is apparently prescribed as the proper method of doing that. The uh, bidder which received, which, whose bid we opened first because his bid came in first, he will be able to draw the first card. The second bidder draws the second card. They show their cards, and this will be overseen by them, witnesses on both their sides. And we also intend to have uh, Pat Thompson invite him to witness this as well. So everything is doing proper. And they would sign this sheet on the front end saying that we're amenable to, we're doing this, and whoever, whoever has the high hand will. We could flip a damn coin right now. <laughs> <laughs> 36 years of construction and contracting, never, never seen it. You know what? I know. Never seen it. First time, too. Our first one. I did a lot of bid openings. So let me ask you a question. And, and, and again, never. I know this, it's, it sounds all cavalier and almost circus-like, but, I mean, isn't it the responsibility of us as commissioners to make sure we spend the least amount of money to get the same job, though, ultimately? And it's just, to me, this just seems like... Except for when they put in a contract, the, the way it has to be. Well, but, but you could always, you have it down to the two bidders. You could always take the ad alternates back and have them bid the ad alternates back up again. And, I mean, I don't know. It's, I'm going with whatever we got to go with, but I just uh, absolutely. The other complicating factor is the number four bidder, if you total his 
total bid, base bid, plus the alternates, he's actually lowest of all. Well, you use base bid as the, as, the, as the first. Yeah, I know. You've you got to eliminate people through It, it gets complicated. The base bid was the first yeah. process. But to me, the Well, that's what I mean. So the base bid is tied. But I'm saying, but then the add alternates is what we're ultimately going to pay to get the library done, and I think we should do it with the contractor that's going to cost the least amount and give us the same job. I mean, that well, just then, makes that sense. Would, but you can't do that. As stewards so now, of the taxpayer I say, dollars, I say that Number makes four sense. is the lowest. What's that? The number four is the lowest. Well, not based on the, the way the contract was drawn. It said base bid first. So no, the add alternate add alternates was not was not a tiebreaker. Right. It had to have, it would have had to say it in in the R, or the request for proposal, right? Right. If, that's right. The event of a tie. That's exactly right. And if it helps, we we struggled with what to provide you as a recommendation because we understood that you'd be looking at hey, if we have the opportunity, what, why should it cost the County taxpayers sixty nine thousand more dollars on a card draw, it, it, that's it, or a coin toss. Exactly, that's exactly right. So, if this helps, uh, you know, one, we've determined that it's just not the right thing to do in terms of the bid documents, but also per the county attorney, it's very risky because there's a very strong chance that we would have a bid protest, and then we spend money on that, eats up the savings, lose all this time. And it could get hung up potentially in courts, which would take even longer. Which would mean that we could potentially lose state funding? Could, could potentially lose state funding. If, for instance, the state operating budgets become a little tight and they look for money elsewhere, the grant administrator has suggested that it is possible they may look to projects such as these where a contract is not yet in place and, and take some of the money from there. Additionally, and this is a very good thing, with the way the bids came in, they came in so well, with the amount of money that we've requested from the state, which at this point would be $3.5 million in construction funding, as well as there is approximately uh, 100, 200, let's see here, about 100 or $200,000 remaining in design funds, which came in under budget, which would also be applied. And, as you know, we have put in an application for FY22 funding. We actually had to reduce that amount because it turns out that these bids came in so low that we are very close to 50-50. If we hit 50-50 or go above that, then we must apply prevailing wages, which would be at a very substantial cost to the contract. So are both, both contractors are okay with this? approach? I mean, you've had contact with them and they're both good with doing this? Yes. I've, I've spoken with both of them. They've indicated that they're amenable to this as an equitable solution. We would likely try to proceed with that here within the next week. And uh, then we could be with, you know, under contract in a couple of weeks. Um, the, uh, to give you the numbers, as what we're proposing with this recommendation for option two, we would be looking at uh, $3.8 million in state funding, approximately $250,000 or more in library fundraising. I believe that John, Janet is, is very optimistic there will be more, but want to be conservative in the numbers that are being presented. And uh, the county bonds would be just over $4 million. So that's uh, it's a very good deal. And the prices definitely came in. We feel we got some very competitive prices on this job. Very good. <clears throat> okay, well, we have a motion and a second. Any other discussion or questions? I'm just hoping that Towson Mechanical pulls a high card. 
Same as $69,000. Is this on both motions or motion one? This is on both both motions. Both motions? Okay. Right. So seeing no further discussion, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Abstain? So moved. 5 up. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And abstain. Thank you, Commissioners. We'll send you an invite to the right. to the drawing lot. I say call them and get them down here Friday. Make we'll it happen. Try. Friday at the latest. Come on. Mm-hmm. We'll make it happen. Yeah, make it happen. Thank you, Commissioner. Thank you, Lee. Great job. All right. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, Janet. Thanks for your efforts in the fundraising as well. We appreciate that very much. That's great. We're looking forward. Yeah. Good. All right, Commissioners, item number five on page 32. Um, this is a... Excuse me, item four on page 29. This is for the uh, Roads Board. So could you convene as the Roads Board, please? This is the annual fuel bid. Make a motion that we convene as the Roads Board. Second. You say second, Steve? Yes. Second. Uh, all in favor? Aye. Aye. There you go. Okay. All right, can we get a motion? We have the annual fuel bid here. Uh, you want to do a motion on that first, and then we can have Shane present that? Okay. So we're going to do all of it at the same time. So yes. we're going to. Yes, uh, the motion is the. Uh, we move forward with awarding the FY21 annual fuel bids as follows. Contract A to Cato Gas and Oil Company, Incorporated of Salisbury, Maryland. Contract B to Cato Gas and Oil Company of Salisbury, Maryland. Contract C to Tri-Gas and Oil Company of Federalsburg, Maryland. Contract D to Tri-Gas and Oil Company of Federalsburg, Maryland. Contract E to Tri-Gas and Oil Company of Federalsburg, Maryland. And contract F to Tri Gas and Oil Company of Federalsburg, Maryland. Second. 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 We have a motion is second. Any discussion? Yeah, real quick. Uh, so uh, we made a contract C. What is contract C? I don't see it on the there is document. No, there is no contract C. It's contract A and B and D through F. Contract C was for years ago, it was uh, actually a biodiesel blend for diesel fuel that we could possibly at some point in the future put back into contract. So I'll move to uh, amend the motion to get rid of contract C, <laughs> since it doesn't exist. Okay. I rescind my contract C. <laughs> there you go. Because it actually on the front page says A, B, D, E, F. So C's not even in there. It's yeah, on, it was in the motion, but it wasn't in the motion. The, yeah. Right. Yeah. We're good. All right. Okay. Okay. So the 800-pound gorilla in the room. <laughs> Why five contracts? I mean, obviously, uh, some are gas and some are fuel, but... Uh, contracts A and B are for the roads division, and that's for our, uh, for gasoline, um, octane 87, and our diesel fuel at the uh, Department of Public Works 301 Yard, as well as the Sanitary District. Contract D is the Sanitary District's uh, generators, wastewater generators. So they are mobile. They have to go around and deliver fuel to all those sites. And then contracts E and F are for... Uh, Again, 87 octane gasoline and diesel fuel for parks. And again, that's a small contract going to very small tanks throughout the county. We have very few bidders that ever bid on contracts D, E, and F because of the small amounts and the, the various places throughout the county they have to deliver. Gotcha. Shane, just as a guess, what would you say you would likely use up under contract A in a year? Just rough number. How many? Um, I think they're bid out at 160,000 and 110,000 gallons for each facility. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay, anything else? Seeing none, we're going to bid on contract A, B, D, E, and F. All those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. Thank you. 
All right, Commissioners, I thank you. I think that's all we had for the uh, roads board, unless you had any questions for, for Shane. Nope. Okay. He has one other item, and this is a, a solid waste item, request for public hearing. So um, I'll let him present that, explain that. Go ahead. Okay. Um, basically, this is uh, in response to the uh, 2019 Maryland General Assembly passed Senate Bill uh, 370, Environmental Recycling Office Building, which requires the collection of recyclable materials from office buildings that have uh, 150,000 square feet or greater of office space. Um, what we have to do now is we have to amend our solid waste management plan to include this amendment that came down through NDE. Uh, it does not affect Queen Anne's County as we have no office buildings of that size, but we do have to amend um, our solid waste plan and include this. So this is simply a request for a public hearing uh, for July 14th, and um, included in here is the uh, resolution as well as the notification of public hearing and the uh, actual proposed text amendment, which has been approved by MDE. So, Shane, how do they classify this? Is it like it has to be all offices, or can it be uh, flex space, that kind of thing? Or is it's, it strictly it's office? office space? Okay. So, so some of the then the business park, where there's buildings there, obviously over 150,000. The largest, I, I actually checked today, like, the largest building they have is 27,000 square feet. Of one vent, one, one building. Per, I got you. Okay. One lone building. Got you. So that's far below 150,000 gotcha. square feet. So down it'll have real effect this but So we just need to make a motion? Yeah. yeah. Yes, please. Um, I move to schedule a public hearing for Tuesday, July 14th, 2020, to amend the county's 10-year solid waste plan. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any further discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. Thank you, Commissioner. Thank you. Thank you, Shane. All right. All right, Commissioners, if you want to flip over to uh, tab three, we have some additional action items for you this evening. We've got uh, 13 items here. The first one is a uh, proclamation that if one of you would care to present that. Commissioner Dumino will be handling this one. Yep. Um, so this is a congratulations proclamation to the class of 2020, Ken Island High School. Whereas Queen Anne's County Commissioners recognize the Ken Island High School class of 2020 for their commitment and perseverance. And whereas the class of 2020 was born and a country changed by terrorist attacks of 9-11 and finished their high school year with the challenges of a global pandemic. And whereas the class of 2020 traded cap and gown for mask and sanitizer, while demonstrating great maturity and dedication and finishing their courses outside their classrooms. And whereas the county commissioners have admiration for the class of 2020's unbreakable spirit strength and determination to succeed during trying times and adversity. And whereas the class of 2020 has proven, them, proven themselves to be role models for the classes that follow and truly represent, represent the best of what rural America can produce. Whereas the county commissioners take great pride in knowing that each graduate is not only an outstanding citizen of Queen Anne's County, but also an ambassador for the achievements of the county's educational system. Now, therefore, we, the county commissioners of Queen Anne's County, do hereby congratulate each graduate of Ken Island High School class of 2020 for their achievements and wish great and, and wish each graduate continued success. Thank you very much. And we have another one. Yep. Item two on page two, we have a similar proclamation for the Queen Anne's County High School we can present. 
that Commissioner Wilson will be reading. Got it. Whereas the Queen, uh, Proclamation 2032, whereas the Queen Anne's County Commissioners recognize the Queen Anne's County High School Class of 2020 for their commitment and perseverance, and whereas the Class of 2020 was born into a country changed by the terrorist attacks of 9-11 and finished their high school year with the challenges of a global pandemic, and whereas the Class of 2020 traded cap and gown for mask and sanitizer, while demonstrating great maturity and dedication in finishing their courses outside of their classrooms. And whereas we, the county commissioners, have admiration for Class of 2020's unbreakable spirit, strength, and determination to succeed during trying times and adversity. And whereas the Class of 2020 has proven themselves to be role models for the classes that follow and truly represent the best of what rural America can produce. And whereas the county commissioners take great pride in knowing that each graduate is not only an outstanding citizen of Queen Anne's County, but also an ambassador for the achievements of our county's educational system. Now, therefore, we, the county commissioners of Queen Anne's County, do hereby congratulate each graduate of Queen Anne's County High School Class of 2020 for their achievements and wish each graduate continued success. Congratulations, graduates. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Commissioner Wilson. Item number three on page three is a... Our third and final proclamation. This is for Pillar of the Month, June. How ironic. Fairness. Fairness. Commissioner Corporino right. is going to read this one. Yeah. Pillar of the Month for June. Fairness. And this is uh, Proclamation 20-30. <clears throat> whereas Queen Anne's County was declared a character counts community, and whereas all citizens have been called upon to embrace the six pillars of character and incorporate them in their daily activities and to model these traits of good character, and whereas... Character Count's Pillar of the Month for June is Fairness. And whereas fairness is defined as being free from favoritism, self-interest, or prejudice, and whereas all people have the right to be treated the same, and whereas all people have the right to equal opportunity for employment, and whereas all people have the right to choose where they wish to live and feeling safe in their communities. Whereas all people will be fair, remain open-minded and reasonable, free from ridicule and harm. Uh, whereas we serve is our mission at Lions Club International, where individuals join together and give of their time and effort into putting into the needs of their community and the word world first, always reaching out to help those less fortunate. Now, therefore, we, the county commissioners of Queen Anne's County, do hereby designate the Character Counts Pillar of the Month for June to be fairness. Thank you. All right. Moving on to Edwards Pharmacy. Thank you, Commissioners. All right, item four on page four is a thank you letter for your consideration to Edwards Pharmacy for their assistance in providing and obtaining PPE during this pandemic in the early stages. I move to sign a thank you letter to Edwards Pharmacy for their assistance in obtaining PPE during the pandemic. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor of signing the letter signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. All right, thank you, Commissioners. Item 5 on page 5 is a letter uh, for supporting the Dudley's Chapel Trustees matching grant for um, uh, replacing the church's roof. I move to sign a letter of support for the Dudley's Chapel Trustees to obtain matching grant funds to replace the church's roof. Second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. All right, thank you, Commissioners. Item number 6 on page 6 is the annual agreement with uh, Maryland Department of Agriculture for our weed control program. Can I get a motion on that? Sign that. 
I move to sign the cooperative agreement with the Maryland Department of Agriculture that provides for cooperation and control and eradication of noxious and certain invasive weeds for the period of July 1st, 2020 through June 30th, 2020. Second. Wait a minute. That's, that's got to right. be June 30th, 2021. I think. Correct. Right. Yes. That's correct. Okay. There's a type of motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. All right, thank you, Commissioners. Item 7 on page 9 is the housing bond allocation transfer for 2020. And this is for um, the Maryland Department of Housing and Community Development to utilize uh, Queen Anne's County housing bond allocation, the participating local government uh, to transfer its allocation to, uh, to them, to the department in writing. And this is a yearly practice which we um, <coughs> comply with. Uh, we move that Commission President Jim Moran sign the transfer of allocation letter to the Department of Housing and Community Development as described and recommended by the Department of Community Services Housing Division. Second. A motion and a second. Any discussion on this item? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. All right. Thank you, Commissioners. Item 8 on page 14 is a recommendation for CARES Act funds for broadband. Can I get a motion on that one? I move to use. I move to use. Care, I move to use CARES Act funds for placement of hotspots on or near schools, libraries, and parks, and working with Queen Anne's County pub, Public Schools and Atlantic Broadband, where Atlantic Broadband service would provide public use during a state of emergency. I approve the waiving of procurement policies in order to proceed with the hotspot implementation with schools and Atlantic Broadband and construction of broadband to the Suburbsville area with Think Big. Remaining funds can be used for a consultant to help. Actually, I'm going to scratch it. I'm going to stop with the Think Big um, for now because I want to add to this uh, during discussion. I may amend the uh, motion is what I'm saying. So. Second. Okay. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Okay. So what, what I'd like to do, and, and I know Megan's got the presentation on a lot of this, and, I, and we talked at the last meeting, and I brought it up about we were trying to uh, make this money go a little farther. We got confirmation back from the federal government that, in fact, all these projects have to be done by December 31st. So we're not able to leverage any of this money for some of the ARDOF grants, which I think Megan's going to talk about too. But um, one of the things I looked at, and, and I think is uh, we we should have about enough to do it in here and maybe get an RFP, is to um, look at putting uh, one of the hotspots, if not its own hotspot, at the 4-H uh, fairgrounds because. Um, one of the problems, in, and I met last night with the, uh, the 4-H, um, the fair committee uh, head, to go over some possibilities for doing the animal shows there. Well, one of the things I said would be great if we could live stream them, unfortunately, and Bruce sitting over there can back me up with this. They can't live stream from the fairgrounds because we don't have reliable broadband there. And I think with that being one of the places that we probably get 40,000 of our citizens to at least once a year in most years, it would be good to have reliable Wi-Fi there that actually works and, and that we can also utilize for um, doing television events. So I'd like to see, and I know I think our numbers are at 700,000 is what we have, and the Think Big is around five, is that about right? And then 160 for the hotspots. So we've got roughly about 40,000. I'd like to see us, instead of the consultant, I'd rather see us get a hotspot at the 4-H grounds. And so. All right. Or utilize one of the ones we're doing in the 160. <coughs> right. 
Um, in conversations about the hotspots, um, we did talk about the 4-H park, and they mentioned that they had something that they, they used there. Uh, we actually have a couple people from um, Atlantic Broadband on the line if we want to ask them questions, too. But West Page mentioned that they do have something that they had used in, like a few years ago and kind of opened up for people, but it didn't seem like it was very consistent. So if there is something that you guys want to work on and maybe that the, the county has to pay for it, um, it might be something that we would have to kind of just continually maintain and work with them to maintain, which I don't think is a huge problem, but just we just have to get a commitment from you all that you're okay with consistently paying for broadband to be shared there. Well, there's more than just the fare there. There's other things that go on there throughout right. the year. And it's and it's traditionally it's horrible. Phone service is horrible there. So having some right. kind and of this, connectivity this would there. Help them be able to do maybe even more events there. Right. When they right. have the internet access there. And I think some people their phones will pick up on Wi Fi signals so it might help with some dead spots too. Correct. At least texting works yeah. if you're on Wi-Fi. So, okay. So, how would you like? Would you like to amend the motion to add the uh, 4-H park for All a right, hotspot? I move yes, to amend please. the motion to add the 4-H park as a hotspot. As a hotspot. Second. Uh, we have a motion and a second on on the amendment. Any discussion on the amendment? Seeing none. All those in favor, signify by saying aye. 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 Uh, aye. Now you got the main. Now, now we're going to vote on your motion. But but let's since Megan brought all this stuff, I'd like her to talk about it. And, okay. and one thing she didn't was the Ardolf grants, which is really what we wanted. What I was hoping we could take better advantage of with the seven hundred thousand dollars, but mm -hmm. unfortunately, right. we At were shut out. On the Ardolf grant is something you're going to hear a little bit more. Well, actually, I'm not sure that Ziggy's going to elaborate on the grants that are part of what he kind of put together in the study. But that grant is it. Actually, I, I did the math last night, and it looks like. Over 10 years, there's probably $8 million in money that a company, all they have to do is go after those grants. So um, it's all kind of mapped out based on census block. And then a company that's interested in ISP, it can be an ISP from anywhere in the whole country, goes after the money. And then they have like a bidding war, basically, that says whoever can do it the cheapest basically wins the bid. So they have a reserve where they um, um, have, you know, they kind of know where to start and they can go either up or down from there. But um, right now the reserve is about $8 million over 10 years. So if they can get that funding, that would be huge. And I know that that's something that Chop Tank had, had discussed about they were interested in moving forward with. And then um, we're going to be talking to Think Big on uh, Thursday about more opportunities if they want to try to move forward with any any other grants? So we're really kind of hoping to, uh, to get something accomplished with our broadband committee. So we're looking forward to it. Question for you, Megan: When a hotspot is created, what are the approximate dimensions of a hotspot? The hotspots that they're going to use for Atlantic Broadband are devices they're going to hook onto the coax that um, on a telephone pole. So it has to be that infrastructure in place. It's not a big device, but it extends further than your house. If you had one at home, um, these extend about 800 feet versus your home. Sometimes you go outside, you can't connect. So they're a little bit stronger than what... Um, what is the approximate cost of the creation of the hotspot? It's about, um, about $3,000 for them to install it in and for the cost of the equipment, too. Right. How long does so. that equipment last? With the lifespan, of must put that in. Um, I don't know the answer. I don't know if anybody on the phone can help me with that. Um, I think Bill Newberg and Kenny Scott or should both be on the line. I'm not sure. If uh, we do have Bill. I don't have Kenny. Bill? Okay. So, uh, Bill, do you have any idea how long a hotspot would last? Uh, I would have to uh, mute our room real quick. Sure. 
So uh, for anyone that's waiting in Zoom to talk and present, uh, we will not be able to hear you if the room is on, and vice versa. Uh, while you're talking, the room won't be able to speak to you. So we just have to go back and forth and work together. And I'll keep communicating so we know who's about to talk. So I'm going to mute our room in here so we can go to Zoom. Very good. Thank you very much for uh, allowing me to be here tonight. <clears throat> Uh-oh. Start your video. Uh, really want to look at me, huh? I am, I am sitting in Virginia in my, at my home. Um, I, 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 first of all, I'm not technical uh, or I know enough to be dangerous. Let me put it that way. I know the hotspots that uh, Metrocast prior to Atlantic Broadband acquiring us, uh, we started installing them probably 2006, 2007 in uh, Virginia, St. Mary's, Maryland, New Hampshire, uh, Connecticut, and parts of Pennsylvania. They're still up and running here. Um, It's kind of a transceiver. It looks like one of our amplifiers on the pole. Key is trying to strategically locate it so it can be uh, in multiple directions uh, to get the best service. So usually what we'll do is we'll send out our technical team. They'll kind of survey the area to look for the best uh, application. We are moving to a, a new device for this project because this is a rather large project. And um, I'm not familiar with that equipment other than to say I've been told it's a lot better. So hopefully that, that helps. I'm going to come back to the room asking Mike. And we're now back in the room. So that's 14 years, Chris. I guess. I know, that, typically, I know that like, on older equipment too. Our so. equipment, we try to get like rotated out at least by like start thinking about it around seven years, no mm-hmm. more than ten. Like just okay. try to for for the switches and routers and big servers and things like that for us. So kind of it should be. I would think that it would be a little bit sooner because it's outdoor, but I guess it's made to be outdoors. So. And, and these hotspots will only be activated in times of emergency, correct? That's correct. So they actually did have two options. Um, if we wanted it to just be, you know, we pay for the, the device and that's it, then um, the Wi-Fi service would be only available to the public during states of emergencies, but they would be available after that to Atlantic Broadband subscribers. Um, another option would be if the county wanted to, to pay to continue to have that publicly available to all the locations. It's about $90 a month per device, and we had... Um, talked through, we had a conversation with them to see what would be realistic, and got to about 27 devices. That comes to about $30,000 a year. So um, that's where we, it's kind of a, it's really up to the commissioners if they wanted to try to be publicly available all the time. And they did say they would work with us if we wanted to use some of the funds to um, kind of do a lump sum to do it for a year if we had any money available to do that. So, so Jim, based on our conversations with Dr. Kane and, and board members earlier, I don't think we should hinge it on a state of emergency because it sounds like a uh, state of emergency may be gone, but that need for the hotspots may still be there depending mm-hmm. on how school comes back. Right. right. So I don't think we want to base it on a state of emergency. And they're having, um, I think, some curriculum over the summer for students as well so that 
to help them. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think I like wrapping it around the state of emergency. Right. Any other discussion? I have one more thing to add. Far away. Um, this was something that really wasn't wasn't uh, brought up originally, but the schools are interested in going ahead and building out to their ten remaining schools. So they um, were also wanted to kind of take advantage of some of this funding if we could help them. They, they've done it to five. They put Wi-Fi devices at five schools, but they want to add it to the rest of those, which have ten more. So that's also about $3,000 per device. So if we can also include that. Um, but we've got some of the schools in here, right? How many are they missing? Um, the, the schools are included for the Atlantic Broadband piece, so that could go to that that's more open, so the schools really are limited with who they can provide broadband to, because it's we signed a contract with the state. It's it's all it's for nonprofit use basically, so it's for government use. So it's really strictly for schools and potentially maybe for remote workers from the county, but it can't be opened up publicly without some conversations with the state. They might be willing to do it during public emergencies as well, but it's surprising. Um, but it's it's kind of limited. But they did want to make that available so they could make it so that in the part they could come to the parking lots and sit. Um, the map that we kind of set up, I just wanted to give you an idea that there are a couple different ways they wanted to do it. We talked about setting up with the regular hotspots on the uh, coax in the green, and then uh, the yellow shows where the um, it, there's its underground plant there, so they would have to work with the schools to be able to put an antenna on the school, and then they could provide broadband from an antenna. Similar to what the school would be doing, but then theirs could be more publicly available because of that restriction that we have. So the schools would be limited access, right? You would have to have a login through the public school system in order That's to get correct. on that. Yes. Except in state of emergency, do they have the caveat in there for the state of emergency that it would be publicly available or no? They don't. It can we never could, be. We could ask the state if there was, you know, if there was a time that we needed to do it, but um, they, they said that we would need to have a conversation. It would be something that we'd have to discuss with them. And I don't, I don't think it would be open. I don't know. We'd, we would have to talk through this, that with the state a little bit more. But. I mean, I'm looking at a lot of location. It looks like even where the schools are, we've got a park relatively close that it's, it wouldn't be that bad right. if it was the case. Okay. But are there any other locations, Southern Canal and below Blue Heron Golf Course, that would be suitable? But my thought is you, you have some more densely populated neighborhoods down there where kids actually could ride their bikes to mm -hmm. get to a hot spot if they needed to. Right. Um, I guess, I mean, the, the Roman Cook Pier, I'm not sure. I don't think that there's any aerial plant down there. I don't. I would have to talk to Atlantic Broadband to be sure. But we could add, if, if you know, if we wanted to kind of leave it open. We think we've only spent right now about 110000 including what we want to do for the schools. Mm -hmm. We move forward with that. So we initially um, anticipated that it would be 160000 And because some of these sites are a little bit more difficult to get to, like Mattapique Beach is just too far off the beaten path, we'd have to construct something. It would take time. And then a lot more engineering to get to. Um, what so, about the ski uh, satellite office? I, th I think there's, there's, I think there are poles down there. I think. Yeah, there's poles down there. We could, we could put something down, trail, down there. Right? But I'm yeah. saying the ski that's, satellite office right in the heart of Roman Cook, so that would. And that's real close to the pier. Yeah, that's right by the pier. That's right by the pier too. Yeah. 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 Just because there, there's a lot of population right there, and that might yeah. be oh, yeah, very definitely. useful. Even at the firehouse, even put at the station nine. The firehouse, right? Firehouse would be the location too if they want. Okay. So can we add? Take a look at that. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, it's good. All right. Any other questions? So we're good with the broadband, everything else, waving everything, moving forward with all these projects. Okay. 
just want to make sure I'm clear. As soon as Jim says, take a vote. Okay. So we are moving to approve the use of CARES Act funds for placement of hotspots near schools, libraries, and parks in working with Atlantic Broadband and approving the waiving of procurement policies in order to proceed with the construction of broadband in the Southersville area with Think Big. Remaining funds can be used for a consult consultant to help with project management to include additional hotspots at the remaining schools. Is that what you're looking? Actually, I think there was an amended. I yeah, we, did, we took out the consultant part and put in the consultant part. Right, right. Right. Okay. Took the consultant right. Yeah, and um, I guess I should have commented, that, and I thought my original statement would have commented, but I want to be more clear. The reason we are waiving the procurement process is because these funds, the, these, this money, what we're spending on, has to be up, running, and operational by December 31st. And this, these are the only projects that really fit into that under that category, and they got to go now in order to make it. So, right, right. All those in favor, signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed. So moved. Thank you, Megan. Thank you. Thank you, Megan. Our commissioners, uh, moving on to item number nine on page 16. We have a, um, another request for CARES Act funding for uh, CARES Act cardiac monitors for our mobile testing units. Can I get a motion on that? I move to piggyback off the state of Maryland contract authorizing the director of the Department of Emergency Service to purchase two Zoll X-Series cardiac monitors totaling $67,712.30 through the CARES Act. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion on this? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. <laughs> All right. Thank you, commissioners. Thank you, Director Haas, for being on standby there. He'll be he'll be here as well. Uh, item number ten on page seventeen is a um, request to release an easement. This is for a uh, fire truck pad and safe ingress egress uh, for emergency vehicles in the Gibson's Grant subdivision. That is no longer necessary. Um, there is a, a an adjacent easement that provides the same access within the subdivision. It's been reviewed by the Volunteer service, the fire marshal, county staff, and the county commissioners need to release this uh, officially if you care to do that. And that is our recommendation. So can I get a motion on that? Uh, I move to dissolve the declaration of covenants and easement Gibson's grant lot uh, 276 recorded in the land records in 2014 by executing the release of the covenants and, eas and easements Gibson's grant lot 276 as submitted by J. Donald Braden and approved by the planning attorney and staff. Staff of emergency vehicle circulation has been documented in the vicinity and a fire truck easement pad is better situated on Lawrence Alley on lot 75. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion on this item? See? I just, I just point out for the public that it, what we have is that the, the um, fire marshal went out there along with the Kennel Volunteer Fire Department and they demonstrated that there is safe passage for the equipment so that this is this is something that has been researched ahead of time to make sure that public safety is still being paramount. Mm -hmm. Any other discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. All right, thank you, commissioners. Item 11 on page 34 is Budget Amendment CC33 and this is to provide uh, small business revolving loan funds from the um, Department of e to the Department of Economic Development on the amount of $240,000 from the Housing uh, Re Revolving Loan Fund. 
I move to approve Budget Amendment CC33. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion on this item? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. All right. Thank you, Commissioners. Item number 12 on page 35 is another CARES uh, Act. This is a budget amendment, CC34, that provides the uh, $2.5 million in funding for small business grants. Um, and we've started that process last week. I move to approve budget amendment CC34. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion on the this amendment? Mr. Wilson. Yeah, this thing I think is going great. Uh, We've had probably almost 100 applications into it. We've got what we're basically trying to do is to see that all the small players in it get served up before the big sharks come in. Because one or two of the biggest operations in the county could eat the whole fund. And it's pretty important that the little guys get there fives and sevens and eights, and that's happening. And we have, under the direction of Mr. Mon, uh, got a good representation of minority players in this and uh, doing good. So very pleasing. And very uh, gratified recipients. So very good. Very good. All those in favor of CC34? Mm-hmm. Uh, signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. All right, thank you, Commissioners. And our our final item here tonight is uh, for action items. Item 13 on page 36 is the Queen Anne's County Residential Sprinkler System Requirement for Additions, Alterations, and Repairs to Single-Family Dwellings. This is an item we discussed uh, back um, before the the height of the pandemic, back in March, and we still need to make a policy recommendation going forward. So I think the... um, There are a few folks here if you have any questions about this, but I think um, generally we wanted to look at this to be uh, flexible and and provide a, a policy document recommendation to allow for the most flexible consideration for uh, requiring fire sprinkler systems in renovation of, of single-family structures. So with that being said, um, correct me if I'm wrong, the state fire marshal uh, does not have a policy for uh, no written policy when it comes to residential sprinkler requirements in additions or alterations or repairs. So that is Director Haas. Have yeah, a there. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. There you go. There's our fire marshal inspector. So right now, you know, we were looking for the county commissioners to make a recommendation on what that policy would be, so there would be no basically no gray area. Uh, I'm of the impression that if somebody takes an older building uh, and doesn't cut down trees or take farmland, you know, I don't want to burden them with, with the cost of a sprinkler system, no matter how much renovation they do. So, you know, that's, that's where I'm coming from, and we're going to open it up to the rest of you to see what your thoughts are. And I think, Jack, did you, who, who was it to talk to the uh, volunteers? Somebody... Was it you that? Well, yeah, Billy did a, uh-huh. a poll of. He got a hold of seven other nine firehouses, and they were okay with the state fire marshal's position on it. I did a little bit of investigation, and it, it, it doesn't look there's going to be much pushback, so it's fine with me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Say that again, Jack. The FEC came back, and what was their? Position? He was able to get a hold of seven of the nine firehouses, and they were in favor of going with the state. What the state fire marshal says, no, which is which is which, which is. 
no sprinkler systems required in residential. Well, required on, on in, alterations, in, additions, right. right? Alterations or additions right. and repairs. I think presently, right now, we're at 50 percent, correct? Yes, if, if we do 50 percent, uh, somebody goes into a house and it's 1,500 square feet or 1,000 square feet and makes it 1,500 square feet, they've increased the size by 50 percent, uh, they have to have sprinklers. And I just, again, you know, I think that one of the things that I, I just look at it is, that, I don't want to call it economic development, but a revitalization of an older existing buildings that, you know, uh, it's not cutting into any of the county's resources and in, in the environment. So to me, I, I don't want to, we can strongly recommend that they do it, but I don't think we should enforce that they have to do it where the state isn't enforcing that. So, you know, I, I don't, I think that uh, we can pick a, a monetary percentage if, you know, I'm, uh, short of tearing down the entire house, you know, then it is a new house. I think that, uh, you know, we could we could set that at, you know, a, a number if we can come to some agreement. If not, we can leave it open. Um, I, I'm asking my fellow commissioners. So seven out of the nine firehouses. Really? That well, surprises me. Seven. That surprises me. On a renovation? On a yeah. renovation, not a new home. Oh, I, I understand that. Wow. I will say that we have we haven't been able to to pin down the state fire marshal's office or anybody for that matter to to give us a, a clear definition as to what is a renovation and what is a new construction when it comes to the when you get close to that ninety nine point nine percent you know is it so I think we can certainly get that clarity we've been making some calls um, we're making those calls now and uh, we can provide that information to you if you want that that maximum flexibility for that requirement and for a policy for, for us going forward, for renovations additions. So what are you saying? Uh, you want to table this for two more weeks? If that would be our recommendation at this point, so we can get a, a clear cut, if we can. I mean, we haven't been able to have anybody pin that down and say, well, a renovation is, you know, if you tear down the complete structure, to the foundation that that you know well, I think maybe is, the is question new. that you need to ask the state fire marshal then is if I have a project that's a renovation are you going to come out here and look at it for a sprinkler system and he's either going to say yes or no because it's a renovation so I, I, I let's put it this way I, I don't have a problem tabling this for two more weeks I don't want to keep bringing these gentlemen in here but uh, yeah we had I mean, a long meeting with them last time this right week. Yeah. so you know I there's certainly some ambiguity and some differences, you know, in the state law and the, and the opinions from the building code and the fire marshals. So we want to get that clarified and, and try to get that definition pinned down so that we can be certain going forward what we can what we can do. Does anybody have a problem with that? I, I don't. My, my only comment would be that um, I don't necessarily agree with 50 percent. Well, I don't um, agree with it at all. So, but yeah. but if you think about a 2,000 square foot you know, rent a uh, home that's going to be 75% renovated. I mean, that's a pretty substantial amount of square footage of an existing home that's being renovated. Mm -hmm. um, I think 50% is, I, I couldn't agree to 50%, but I could certainly agree to 75%. Okay. okay. That's food for thought. There you go. So we can hold that for. But, I, but again, I right. think it's important to find okay. out. Yeah. All right, so we'll, we'll clearly we'll define renovation and uh, you know, but I've been asking these questions for months, so 
we are going to we are going to vote something. Well, why would we could I mean, we could also vote on it, and if the information that we get from the state fire marshal is drastically I, different, we can, we, we can we can open just, our vote I, back I, up I and change it. Okay. But otherwise, make, let's just move forward. Somebody, let's make a motion. What do you want? You know, how do you want to? Well, you, what you said initially when we first started the conversation was a good motion. Well, I mean, are you, are, you know, there's the, 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 the. It's my understanding that the state has no set law or regulation for renovations. Am I correct in that, Vivian? Am I correct in that? It is not clear. So it's not. It is not. So okay. So. Do we want to put a percentage or we just want to put any renovation does not require a sprinkler system? You can put any renovation right now and then okay. always change it. I mean, okay. let's face it. We can, so, you can always make it more strict. Okay, so, more. so we're, we're going we're gonna to ease that then. We're going to say any re renovation of a residential home uh, is not required to have sprinkler systems in it. That's the motion. So a motion in a second. Any discussion on that? And, you know, with that... If you come back in two weeks with something that's uh, groundbreaking, we can always adjust that. But right now, that's what we're going to. That's the motion, and we have a second. Any other discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor, signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed. One opposed. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Sorry for dragging you in here. No. Never right. yeah. like it. <laughs> all right. Thank you all. Okay, commissioners. That's all of our action items this evening. We can move into our presentations portion of tonight's meeting and if you want to flip over to tab number six first we have uh, mr ken Cozell, university of maryland shore health ceo for a shore health update and this is a very important time for uh, mr Cozell to come meet us tonight how are you good evening middle midst of a pandemic so this evening good I understand you're running a little bit late, so I'll be brief, but certainly as comprehensive as you need me to be. And thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Uh, a lot has gone on since the last time we've been together. Yes. <laughs> you, 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 could, <laughs> you could say that the uh, healthcare world has been uh, rocked on its foundation, seriously. But if, if I leave you with any messages, gentlemen, it's that your local healthcare system, the University of Maryland Shore Regional Health, and the 2,400 team members and 400 providers that are part of our family have displayed courage and have just risen to the challenge that COVID has brought every single day for our healthcare system. And I couldn't be more proud as the CEO for the system to represent our community as we battle this worldwide pandemic. We're not through it yet, but we have accomplished a lot over the last 100 plus days. And if you will, I'll just give you a sense of what we've done over the last 100 days bring the plane down to Queen Anne's County specifically, and then answer any questions that you have. Is that okay? And I'll be brief. So as soon as the United States and the state of Maryland recognized that COVID-positive patients were coming this way, uh, we did what all great healthcare systems did across the country, and that was establish an incident command structure, not only within Shore Regional Health, but within the University of Maryland medical system. That structure, as you all are very familiar with, is very important in how we manage a disease like a worldwide pandemic, how we're able to communicate effectively and transfer information seamlessly from, from within Shore Regional Health and the three hospitals we have in the emergency center in Queenstown to the entire University of Maryland medical system who have national experts sitting at these command centers managing this disease. 
and then from that correspondence to the local communities and the five counties that we serve, who each have established their own incident command structures so that we can relay the county's needs with our, with our local health care system's capabilities. So incredibly important that that was established early and it was established successfully because that is still in place today and will continue to be beyond uh, the, the closure at the state level. So critically important is step one. Step two was responding to the governor's call. And the governor's call early on was to increase the bed capacity within the state of Maryland. He knew that we were going to need more beds, quite honestly, that patients were going to get sick and they're going to need to come into the hospital for their care. Shore Regional Health responded immediately with our capability to expand our surge capabilities, our bed capacity, if you will, to double what our normal capacity is and to quadruple the ICU capacity that our, uh, our hospital systems have. So we were well above 240 inpatient beds that we could support for these community, for the communities that we serve. And of those 240 beds, we could, we could see up to 88 intensive care patients in our three hospital system. Very critically important because we didn't know what to expect. We didn't know how many patients were going to need hospital care and how many of those were going to need intensive care. So we established our surge capabilities early and often, and the Queen Anne's Emergency Center played an important role in that. By expanding the capabilities and the footprint within Queen Anne's, the emergency center itself, as well as within the medical office building, and in the tent that we've established on the outside of our facilities, that allowed us to increase the capacity of patients that we could see. So important that we established our surge capabilities, and then from there, the next step is you can have all the beds available that you need, but if you don't have the staff to support those beds, you're never going to treat those patients. So our team got together and figured out new staffing models that could accommodate up to double our, our current capacity. We don't staff to our maximum capacity today, yet alone double that, but we had to be creative on how we're going to staff for that inevitability. We did that. We have a plan in place, and we could surge up as we need to. But again, if you've got beds and you've got staffing, there's a couple more factors that are going to either make you successful or make you fail, and that is your capability to have personal protective equipment. Our team members' safety is paramount. Our patient's safety is paramount. We didn't want to spread the disease from team member to team member or team member to patient or vice versa. Had to be safe, and you have to wear the appropriate PPE. And as you can imagine, there's two dozen different layers of PPE that have to be worn from boot covers to N95 masks and face shields and and pappers and everything in between. So a constant day-to-day inventory assessment, ordering of supplies, procuring those supplies, getting them out to the units, and making sure that we had plenty in storage to support that at the local, state, and national levels. So incredible work had been done to secure that PPE. And then finally, the testing equipment and the ventilators. If you've got all of that, you're able to run your surge capacities pretty cleanly and smoothly. And over the last 100 days, we've been able to do that. We have not nearly gotten close to what our surge capabilities are at shore. On average, we see from 10 to 25 patients a day within our hospitals that are COVID positive. But still, that requires an intense amount of of patient care, an intense amount of PPE and equipment and and utilization and correspondence between our local healthcare system and the communities that we serve, primarily through the health officers directly so that they could run the tracers and make sure that they identify others that could be positive in that cycle and try to break that cycle as quickly as possible. So all of that's been done over the last 100-plus days. We've prepared, we've, we've planned, we've executed on the policies and procedures we need to t- put into place to be safe, and now we're caring for those patients as they come into our health care system. But what we're also doing that I think is critically important for the council to know is that we are preparing for the second and potentially third surge that could be coming our way. We're not sure. 
All the, indica- all the data is suggesting that it's likely, and it's surge number two is likely to be uh, in our vicinity around uh, July and early August. So we're preparing for that possibility as well. To, to that end, again, reevaluating our staffing and our PPE capabilities and adding tent support so that we can expand our surge capacity if needed. We get a lot of traffic from the western shore to the eastern shore over the course of the next uh, three months or so. So it's going to be incredibly important to be ready. So that's what we've been working on over the last um, 100 plus days, and we're incredibly prepared and ready to respond. Um, As I bring the plane down, though, to Queen Anne's County, I can't thank you enough for the support of the community that we serve here. The the outcry of of recognition of the healthcare heroes that are part of Shore Regional Health has just been phenomenal. Uh, The support in the form of supplies, masks, food, financial support, you name it, has been overwhelming. And it's been very, very important during these time frames as we, as we need those types of support in order to function effectively. So can't thank the county enough and our Midshore community enough because as your local health care system, we haven't gone anywhere. We're not going anywhere. We're going to treat you if you come into the emergency room, if you get admitted, if you have COVID or not. We're going to be your local health care system for uh, as long as it takes to do that. So that's some of the things that we've been working on with regard to COVID-19. I'll stop there just to see if you've got any questions about COVID before I talk a little bit more about the emergency center and some things we're working on there. Sure. Uh, what what adds up to what what illuminates your idea that we're going to get a expansion in July and what thoughts do you have about the winter and fall? Yeah, uh, the data that's that we're looking at. Honestly, it's it's trying to project and predict future models, so it's not an exact science. But what it does is just take the population, it takes the measures that are put in place at, at the state and local levels, like social distancing, wearing of masks, closing operations to slightly opening those operations over time, and it factors in all of those things as it projects what the uh, positive rate will, so could be. So basically, as we move from phase one to phase two, you're looking three or four weeks later for some sort Absolutely. of rollout. Seven to 14 what, days is typically the incubation period, so that's, that's usually what we're looking at. you say you're expecting some kind, would you give any kind of estimation of what you might think that might be? Well, again, the projections are at this point that if, it, if a second surge does come in, if a second wave comes in, it could be up to three times the amount of positive patients that we've seen. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that all patients would be hospitalized. Oh, sure. And that's what we're also working on is making sure that we're doing all we can to keep patients from... Uh, uh, needing hospital care if they're COVID positive. Identify them early, uh, so, uh, sequester them for the, the appropriate period of time, uh, re- interact with them to make sure that they're not uh, contaminating others and containing the virus. So those are all steps that we can continue to take that would help reduce that surge. But at this point, we're thinking that instead of one large surge with a flattening and then a drop-off, that it's going to be kind of a, a peak, a mountain-type kind of surge instead. What's the turnaround on testing now? Someone goes in for a test, when do they get the results? It's a great question, and the answer is a few different answers. The first is, in our hospital today, we have have some capabilities, not a lot, but we have testing capabilities where we can turn a result around within four hours. But we reserve those tests for patients that are in the hospital who need to be admitted, for patients that need to go to emergency surgery, because we don't have an unlimited supply of test material. We have the test collection material, but we don't have the kits to run the tests on. So, so, but for the ones we do, it's four hours. For those that um, 
uh, may not be as urgent as what I just described, we could send those specimens to the medical center in Baltimore, and they can get a turnaround time usually well within 48 hours Mm -hmm. of testing. Early on, it was 10 days to a reference lab nationally who was collecting samples from all over the world. So that has dramatically improved. So it's gone from 10-plus days national reference labs to keeping it within University of Maryland medical system 48 hours or less and, turnaround and is, time. Is that duration continuing to improve? Like, yes. come the fall, will we expect to be able to do more rapid tests here locally? That's the hope, yes, is that if we can get that, not so much the collection kits anymore, we can, we can get the swabs to collect, but it's the testing kit materials that we need to, to uh, run those tests. If we can continue to get those supplies, that's where I think the difference may be with regard to the surge. But it's been a challenge. Manufacturers are trying to produce as much of this material as they possibly can, but the demand is significant. Sure, everybody in the world wants it, so. Exactly. But uh, that could be a deal breaker if we're able to get those materials and help address the positive rates, get that information to the health officers, and start the containment process. That could really help surge. And I think that's what we've done a great job with on the midshore. All of the health officers are engaged. They're understanding where the positive patients are and reacting and then trying to make sure that we're looking in advance for tracing those patients' history of events to try to follow up with others that may be positive and and follow through with them as well. So incredibly important. We don't know what the future holds, but we know that we're ready to address what comes our way, and we're going to be as prepared as we possibly can. Our motto is uh, plan for the worst, hope for the best. But that's what we've done as planned. Um, now, bringing the plane down to Queen Anne's a little bit, um, you know, one of the things we've seen in, the, in our system is a reduction in inpatient admissions, a reduction in ER visits, because patients, quite frankly, are scared to come into the hospital. They think they're going to get COVID if they come into our system. Um, but, but at Queen Anne's, what I've seen over the last fiscal year, which started in June and runs to April through June of this year, is that we're pretty much where we were last year with regard to ED volumes this time last year. So while we've seen a small dip over the last month or two, we're still seeing the same. We'll get to 16,000, 17,000 emergency room visits in Queen Anne's County by the end of this fiscal year, which is about what we had last year. So still providing an incredible resource to the community for urgent and emerging care, even in the face of a worldwide pandemic. So incredibly important that that sustains itself. But the hospitals themselves have have been down in volumes. Um, as the governor starts to open up the state, though, and, and allow for more testing and things, we've advanced with our surgical cases now. So we're starting to open back up our operating rooms and starting to do those emergent, then urgent, then elective cases that have been on backlog or delayed since the COVID uh, virus struck over 100 days ago. So we're starting to ramp that back up. But guess what happens? You increase your testing material because you're testing everybody now that's coming into your ORs. You increase your PPE utilization because now everybody's got to have the PPE for those additional OR cases that weren't in place 100 days ago. So you got, you've got to keep an eye on that balance and make sure that you control utilization with access to care. But the message that I'd like to share with the communities is that please don't delay getting care. If you need urgent care and emerging care, please utilize our health care services on the shore. Come to the Queen Anne's ED if you need emergent care. Um, see your primary care doctor. See your specialist if necessary. One of the things that has, has really been a disruptor with COVID in the Midshore region and everywhere is the use of telemedicine. And I know that you've got a couple of agenda items on your roster today to talk about broadband access. Our telemedicine capabilities has, has just blossomed over the last several months. And it's because, one, people are fearful to come into the doctor's office or, or the hospital 
but two, they still need to get that routine or, or uh, specialized care. So we've launched significant telemedicine capabilities. And I think, honestly, we've just scratched the surface on what we're able to do. And I think post-COVID, we're going to expand on that utilization significantly as a resource to help give our mid-shore community access to care. Primary care, specialists, urgent care is also using telemedicine capabilities, uh, as well as some diagnostics we'll be able to do as well. So this is going to, I think, going to be one of the positive disruptors from COVID moving forward is our telemedicine capabilities. But a lot of that starts here in Queen Anne's County as well. So important to continue that process, and we'll keep you posted on how those volumes increase over time. I saw a statistic the other day, though, that said that we, as a country, the United States is projected to go from 39 million telemedicine visits projected for this year to almost a billion with COVID. So it's an incredible disruptor in how we provide care, but it's going to be part of our future. And anything you can do to help support access through uh, connectivity is going to be critically important for, for that success. How does the uh, telemedicine affect billing? I mean, what's the effect on the physicians and the hospital? And Very good question. Work? For the most part, you can do most of what you, were, you could do through telemedicine as if you were in the doctor's office. There are, so the coding and the levels of coding for those visits are about the same. But there may be some things that you do while you're in the doctor's office that maybe advance your, your, your screening maybe one level up. And that's, you know, uh, having a little bit more interaction with the patient, physical interaction with the patient as you're doing your, your analysis. Um, so for the most part, the reimbursement is the same because you could do most of the work the same as within telemedicine is face-to-face. But there may be some procedures or, or, or uh, visits that require a little bit of additional work that would, re- that would be a higher level of visit. And get, and get more revenue for. Going backwards in time, I'd like to uh, tell you that I'm sorry Queen Anne's County has not provided you almost any business at all. I think we got two hospitalizations or something, which we're very proud of, and oh. I think our citizens did a great job. So Absolutely, and I can't thank Dr. Ciatola enough. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Ciatola took the lead on testing in our five county communities, and that has really helped reduce the hospital utilization. By, understand, by not having those patients come to the hospital for their testing, having them done at the, at the Chesapeake College, and not just for Queen Anne's County, but he opened that up for the entire five-county region. So incredibly important and, and a, a valuable tool as we work through this worldwide pandemic. Yeah, one other thing I'd like to add, and that is you guys have gotten a really good grade on your cardiac stuff. I mean, the county is extremely, the EMS guys just tell me you're doing terrific with it. So, well done. I'll pass that on to our interventional cardiologists and our cardiac team. They are phenomenal. They really are. We're getting just terrific response. Thank you. They're saving lives, and I appreciate that very much. Thank you. I'll pass that on. Yeah, so um, I guess one of those conversations that's been had probably more so since the 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 spike is down in most parts of the country is the um, incidence or what is going to be the, the, the long-term effects of people not getting um, their uh, maintenance care, if right. you want to call it that, right. um, specifically stuff like, like say, dermatologists, because they weren't allowed to see patients. and think, you know, So you have somebody who maybe had the onset or, even worse, skin cancer, couldn't get in and see a doctor for 100 days. I mean, that, obviously now that person may have uh, been elevated to the next level of the cancer. Uh, people with heart conditions that maybe aren't getting detected that they have. I mean, has, has the medical community looked at how much of a, I guess, how much of a surge is that going to provide over the next 10 to 12 months when, you know, some of these things that are lingering? 
That's a great point, and that is part of the surge planning that we factored into, not just COVID-positive patients, but a surge of patients in our healthcare system as a result. Um, I think since we are able to open a little bit earlier, like we've been able to do with our operating room cases as well as with our primary care and diagnostic services, that's helped that backlog just to a large extent. So much so that we're, we're almost 75, 80% of our, current, of our current capacity is about where we were. So we're, we're operating at about 75% of what we usually are in, in laboratory, maybe a little bit less, 60% in our x-ray outpatient x-ray services. In our primary care offices, though, the volumes are starting to stabilize to where they're almost back where they were pre-COVID, but they've used telemedicine as that resource for, for seeing those patients. So we're being creative. Uh, we're opening <coughs> when the state allows us to open and, and, and providing that access as much as possible, and then supporting our patients with uh, you know, continued access through other means to, to give them the care that they need. You're right, though, it is gonna be a challenge. Uh, it is something we have to keep an eye on because the last thing we wanted to have happen is our community get sicker than they would have uh, been sick and then come into our emergency department and, and use our hospital services even longer than they would have. So definitely something that we're keeping an eye on. Very good. Thank you for the opportunity to be here today and share this with you. It's, uh, again, I'll leave you with healthcare heroes live and work in Queen Anne's County and they're doing an incredible job, and I thank you for their support, and I thank the community for their support as well because uh, we couldn't do it without you. It's a partnership, and uh, we appreciate our partnership with Queen Anne's County and everybody associated with how we're managing this. And One last thing. What's going on with your urgent with the urgent setup. Yeah, so as I mentioned, our urgent care centers have been open and seeing patients, and many through telemedicine capabilities. But quite honestly, with COVID, we are really trying to understand what the future of urgent care looks like. We want to make the assumption that when COVID comes and goes, uh, there'll be a constant need for urgent care, and it will be the same, if not more than what it was before. But we have to make sure that we understand that. But So we're doing that evaluation now. We're making sure that um, urgent care is a pri- is, continues to be part of our continuum and uh, should be uh, invested in. Um, and I think it's important to note that on March 1st, actually, of this year, University of Maryland Medical System inherited all of the urgent care centers that we were uh, minority partners in. So we are now, are all of our nine urgent care centers within the University of Maryland medical system, two on the Eastern shore, are all part of UMS now, 100% owned. So we have made a significant investment as an UMS system. We're gonna continue to evaluate the effectiveness of urgent care moving forward. And as we prove that it will continue to be part of the important continuum of care, Outside of primary care and specialists, there's after hours, weekends, there's things you don't need to go to the ER for. I believe it's going to continue to be an important part. Then we're going to evaluate when and how to invest in expanding our capabilities. And from my perspective, Queen Anne's County is number one on that list for the Eastern Shore. And we're going to continue to look at that. And Heather's been terrific with uh, helping us evaluate opportunities within Queen Anne's County. So we're going to continue to pursue that, have that dialogue. But just make sure that we don't leap too far before we understand the implications of COVID. Moving forward. Great. Thank you very much. Appreciate, Appreciate it. You Thank, you. Thank you. Have a great evening. Appreciate it. Thank you, Ken. Good to see you as always. Yeah. All right. All right commissioners, uh, item number two in the presentation section of the book on page two is from Mike Clark, our Chief of Housing and Family Services. And this is a community development block grant COVID. Uh, funding hearing, and he has a small piece he has to read, and we got some 
Good evening. Good evening. Hello. See you all. Thank you for allowing me to do this, to be here. Um, the purpose of this is that um, we're applying for a community development block grant under the COVID emergency uh, funding, and um, we have to do certain steps, and one requires to have a hearing. Part of that hearing requires me to read off a piece. I timed it when I practiced it this morning. It's three minutes and seven seconds. I apologize. I did call the state and asked if we could take certain parts out, and it's not as long as the piece you have in your packet. So they did allow us to take pieces out. And then after that, um, if, if it pleases you, if you could read the resolution and approve the two motions, and then that, I don't think we have anybody waiting to make comments. So theoretically, after I read my piece, that would be when we'd take comments, but I don't think there's anybody waiting to take any right now. So with your permission, I'll go ahead and start that part. You got it. All right, thank you. The Maryland Community Development Block Grant uh, CDBG program is a federally funded program designed to assist governments with activities directed toward neighborhood and housing revitalization, economic development, and improved community facilities and services. The grant is administered by the Department of Housing and Community Development. The Maryland CDBG program reflects the state's economic and community development priorities and provides public funds for activities which meet one of the following national objectives in accordance with the Federal Housing Community Development Act of 1974 as amended. That, one, benefits to low and moderate income persons and households. Two, aid in the prevention or elimination of slums or blight. Three, meet other community development needs of an urgent nature or that are an immediate threat to community health and welfare. Below is the community for citizens about below is the information for citizens about the community development block grant funding available through the Department of Housing and Community Development. The amount of CDBG funds available in, to the state of Maryland through the CARES Act is $4,691,887. The range of activities that may be undertaken with CDBG funds and activities assisted under the state CDBG program may include the following as, assigned, as defined more specifically in Section 105A of Title I of the Housing and Community Development Act of 1974, also known as the HCD Act of 1974, 42 U.S.C. subsection 530A as amended. The state chooses to limit the uses of the funds to certain activities. The eligible activities can be implemented immediately and are not subject to lengthy environmental review processes or permitting. All activities are considered to be public services by HUD. Applicants must be able to demonstrate that they are addressing needs resulting from the coronavirus crisis. Eligible uses and examples of projects activities are senior services, food programs, homeless assistance, rental assistance for low and moderate income households, rural health centers and clinics, services for disabled adults, and other essential services. As there is a significant funding available for both federal and state levels, the CDBG program is to ensure that there is no duplication of benefits. Applicants must identify all sources of funds, including local and private, that have been applied for and or received for requested projects and activities. Food purchases are only allowed during the emergency period. The proposed project under consideration by the county commissioners of Queen Anne's County for Queen Anne's County are Queen Anne's County Rental Assistance, for $140,054, an emergency shelter for $10,200. Queen Anne's County Division of Housing and Community Services will implement an emergency rental assistance program for the households who are at 51 to 80% of area and median income and provide an urgent need to provide emergency sheltering at a hotel or motel for individuals who need to self-quarantine from family or other room roommates due to a COVID-19 diagnosis. 
So that is the introduction that was required to be read into the record there. Okay. Would you like the resolution to go next? I would, if you don't mind. If there's nobody, I don't think right. there's anybody. Any public comment? Resolution 20 12. Do we have to close the hearing before we read the resolution? Since there's no comment. Okay, so there's no there's no public comment, so we'll close the hearing portion or move forward to the resolution 20-12. Whereas the state of Maryland, through the Department of Housing and Community Development, has solicited applications from eligible jurisdictions to apply for funding under the Maryland Community Development Block Grant Program for funds awarded through the Federal CARES Act, and whereas Queen Anne's County is eligible to apply for funds from the Maryland Community Development Block Grant Program through the Maryland Department of Housing and Community Development, and whereas the county commissioners of Queen Anne's County have held the required public hearing related to the formulation of the Queen Anne's County Block Grant application, and whereas the county commissioners of Queen Anne's County understand and acknowledge that they would be responsible for competition excuse me, completion of grant activities and any corrective actions, including the repayment of funds if necessary. Now, therefore, be it resolved that the county commissioners of Queen Anne's County authorize the submittal of an application for community development block grant funds in the amount of $150,254 this 9th day of June 2020 for the following projects, Queen Anne's County Rental Assistance and Emergency Shelter. Be it further resolved that the that Michael Clark, Chief of Housing and Family Services, is authorized and empowered to execute any and all documents required for the submission of the application. Signed, the Queen Anne's County Commissioners. I'd like to make a motion to adopt Resolution 20-12. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. Thank you. And there's actually two more recommended actions under the cover memo, and then I will be done. I move to authorize the application for the Community Development Block Grant for round one of the COVID funding. Second. We have a motion and a second on that item. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. I move to sign the certificate of exempt activity, the certification of categorical exclusion, and the request for release of funds and certification as described and recommended by the Department of Community Services Housing Division. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. All right. Well done, Mike. Thank you very much. All right, Commissioners, uh, item number three on page 12. We have the uh, broadband feasibility study presentation, CTC technology and energy, and uh, Megan is back with us, and I believe we have a presenter coming in yes, front of us yes. here. Ziggy, Zoom. Ziggy. So um, getting set up here now. And would you like me to go to Ziggy now or stay in the room, Megan? Okay, no problem. All right. So um, I just want to kind of give a quick introduction. So if you want to sit there, you can actually use the clicker. Oh, I can? Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. 
All right, so um, the Broadband Advisory Committee put out an RFP for the um, a broadband feasibility study last fall. So uh, we are very pleased with the result of this, and, uh, and we just wanted to um, share the results of this plan that will be used as a guide moving forward with um, all things broadband and all the opportunities. It's kind of made us really aware of the opportunities that are coming, and uh, we're excited just to kind of see where it might take us. So we'll, without further ado, we'll... Give it over to Ziggy. Okay. I'm going to mute our room in here. All right. Thank you. Um, uh, thank you for um, allowing me to present this. And uh, also want to thank Megan and her uh, task force. It's not usual I get to uh, work with um, counties and jurisdictions that are this well prepared and this well informed. So that was an absolute pleasure. Um, Megan, I can't actually see the presentation. So I am assuming I'll just tell you where to go. And Okay, uh, you can jump to uh, slide four, findings. Okay. All right. So uh, slide four findings, uh, just the key takeaways, takeaways I would say is um, uh, we did our engineering study and uh, um, to figure out what the cost would be and compared it against a baseline of fixed wireless cost. And to compare apples with apples, um, we do it over a, a longer time frame. So uh, because fiber is more costly to install, but um, obviously uh, survives much longer, whereas fixed wireless has to be replaced uh, within fairly short intervals. So the costs accumulate quite a lot. So over the long term, uh, fiber or coax is a much better investment. Um, and that is definitely so in Queen Anne's County. Um, and as you all know, this is in terms of broadband unserved uh, it's not a problem that can be easily solved once and for all. There's no silver bullet, but uh, the county has a lot of options. And uh, with the right in, uh, county investment and support, this, this is a doable uh, problem to solve. And if, as you know, grant funding is definitely something that can help uh, put providers exactly to a point where the uh, return on investment uh, will work for them. So slide five, um, this gives you a sense of what the unserved areas look uh, like. It's, it's quite a lot of area in terms of acreage. Um, you've got large clusters. It doesn't always look like that when we do feasibility studies in various uh, other areas. Oftentimes you've got lots of small pockets or one large area. Uh, and it's hard to draw contiguous lines. This was, uh, we had to do some back and forth and we had cooperation of several providers in the area, which is also a, a nice surprise. We don't always get that. Um, and, and as I noted, there's a lot of options. And one of the options we'll talk about is uh, the county actually has a lot of uh, fiber to the premise uh, providers or coax providers that could help here. Uh, and uh, again, that's a big difference from other places where oftentimes we have nobody interested and uh, it, 
uh, we're essentially forced to look into fixed wireless uh, solutions. Um, this is these large unserved areas. We call, call those category ones. Some grant opportunities focus on these types of uh, um, contiguous clusters. Um, others allow for looking at small places, uh, small little tiny clusters and pockets within what are all otherwise served areas. We call those category two. On, on slide six, you can see what that uh, looks like. Um, so you've got like these spurs where you've got some unserved and those are your category two. Everything else is really served, but then you've got these outliers there where you, you have to um, sort of extend into uh, to uh, construct to. Slide three has our third category of addresses. These are locations of uh, that are at the end of very long setbacks or driveways. Um, there are no grant uh, solutions for those kind of places, uh, usually, um, unless you, you're doing some fixed wireless where it happens to pick those places up. Um, these are considered served from a federal and state perspective in terms of definition of served areas. Um, and and in, if it's there's cable plant in the uh, area, the franchise agreements uh, will always stipulate that beyond a certain distance, it is a cost-sharing um, agreement between the homeowner and the cable company, and which becomes quickly very, very expensive and out of reach. But um, and we see that a lot in in Maryland, those kind of places. Uh, Jumping forward to recommendations, slide eight. Um, this probably doesn't come as a surprise to many of you, but work with Chop Tank. Um, Chop Tank has indicated that they are very, very interested in in um, constructing fiber to the premise in their electric service areas. That means uh, you would get not just category one, but also category two addresses that would be picked up that way. Um, and so the second uh, recommendation would be to work with Think Big. They are very interested and a very attractive partner for many reasons. And there's the whole gamut of, of uh, funding opportunities, state, um, uh, rural digital opportunity fund, and reconnect are the three primary ones, but there may also be others. Um, and I'll uh, cover those uh, a little bit if we have time. Um, then partner with Atlantic Broadband. They were a great company to work with while, while we did this, very uh, cooperative and collaborative. And they have presence in most of the county. So it's the extension to unserved area is something that is cost. Um, it, it's a, definitely a doable proposition with the right uh, support. And then there are some other uh, private fiber optic partners. Uh, one that reached out to uh, us in the county was uh, Talkie. Um, uh, so they are definitely an, a possibility as well. And then, of course, fixed wireless. Um, the next slide. And just to illustrate why Chop Tank is such an attractive possibility um, if they make good on their commitment to uh, to construct in their entire service area. 
So you can see the unserved area. This this is the uh, the the this crossed area, uh, cross hatched area, and then in yellow that is chop tanks uh, service area. There's quite a lot of overlap, but um, their service territory covers a lot of the unserved areas. And then let's uh, next slide. Um, in terms of uh, let's jump to slide 11. In terms of where the county is right now, in terms of benefiting from uh, its own infrastructure, uh, the kind of uh, partners that are potentially available, and the grant funding that is available. Um, so Queen Anne's County um, is really blessed, I would say, by having a very attractive market compared to other rural um, uh, areas than that certainly has a lot to do with why, why all these wireline providers have interest in the county. Um, Atlantic Broadband is active. It usually, it's not always that the incumbent cable, coax cable provider is interested in working with the jurisdiction. Atlantic Broadband has shown that it is, and certainly uh, in terms of uh, working with the county on state funds, they have been interested and, and engaged. Think Big, of course, as you know, has been very interested in partnering with the county as well. Um, and then I had mentioned Talkie. They are eager. They, uh, they have a presence next door in a county next door, but they are smaller and quite unproven. And so I would certainly put them behind uh, Think Big. Um, and uh, we also were told that Chop Tank has not only announced that it will build and it'll build everywhere in wherever it has a presence, but it will go after the RDOF uh, funds. So um, let's jump to uh, slide 13, grant funding strategy. Um, this is the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund that I wanted to illustrate. Um, in green, you have the areas that the FCC has made available as eligible areas that entities can bid on. These are usually private providers. Um, there are other entities that can bid on as well, but uh, and including uh, local governments if they choose to do so. But uh, in general, these it's usually um, uh, incumbents, other ISPs and uh, electric co-ops that, that bid on these kind of areas uh, in an auction uh, format. Um, this is not, the, what's unique about this is that because it is something where the ISP, the provider participates and they submit a short form, July 15th is the deadline where they indicate that they want to participate in the auction. There's no county involvement, there's no signature, there's no proof of partnership. They can arrange something with the county for support. It will have to be done before the short form is submitted, though. They can't. There, there are confidentiality rules to make sure that the auction has integrity. That means that they can't share information after that date. Um, uh, the, the support is also unique, whereas most loans and grant programs, federal and state, are in the form of capital grants, sometimes dis uh, dispersed immediately, 
sometimes as you build out, you get more of, you get a certain percentage of the funds released. Uh, RDOF is different. RDOF is essentially operational subsidies that are given monthly over a 10-year span. So in other words, if you can find the capital funds, either because you have them or because you have access to them through a bank or, or investors, um, this becomes an, a very, very attractive proposition um, for uh, interested providers. Um, if you look at the overlap, what you can see is that Chop Tank uh, could bid for as much as, well, actually a little bit over, more than half of the entire uh, unserved areas of Category 1, and they would also pick up quite a bit of Category 2. Um, okay, so let's jump to the next slide. This would be slide 14. Uh, this talk just a little bit about the different types of grants. You probably um, know about the state grants, the, the, the usual uh, ex expansion grants. They're available. Usually they announce sometime in August, and they then they run, and the submissions are due, depending on which one of them, sometime in February and in March of, of the next year. One to three million for the expansion grant. There's also a smaller um, uh, line extension grants. Those are optimal for incumbent uh, cable providers that have existing infrastructure nearby. Uh, and so it's they, all they need is that little push out that couple of roads to get to a cluster that is ready for pickup. Um, there, and you can pick up a few clusters here and there. Um, Atlantic Broadband has been very interested in those kind of opportunities. Um, depending on who it is, uh, they may need more or less support um, from the county and or the state. Um, if it's Atlantic Broadband, they probably need less support because, you know, they don't have to go very far from their existing plant to reach the various areas and expand out, whereas Think Big needs what we call middle mile fiber, then you kind of a, to, to branch into an area and then uh, build the distribution plant out to neighborhoods and houses. So it's, it's, it's a sort of, it's a bigger investment for them. There's more of a build. Um, but these are all very doable and attractive opportunity. State grants are also great. They adopt 25-3 baseline uh, which is what the FCC has adopted, and they don't have a lot of the exclusions and caveats that federal grants do. Uh, Reconnect, this is the USDA's Reconnect grant. This is for um, also rural areas, primarily just as RDOF is. Uh, we have had two rounds of that so far. There, A third round has not been announced, but there is a... Um, a very high likelihood and a lot of talk in Congress about at least uh, infrastructure and stimulus funding is conceived of in terms of a, a vehicle for pumping a lot of money into uh, broadband. Um, yeah, I should say not all incumbents are eager to participate in federal opportunities. Um, there are a lot of strings attached and, and, um, 
I don't recall if Atlantic Broadband was was considering it or not, but there are a lot that don't want to participate at all. For example, Comcast will not entertain federal opportunities at all. Um, the the bar for determining what is eligible is pretty high. It, it's it's a lot of work. We did that work in this um, for this study, so it won't take much to sort of realign it for future uh, possibility. And other than that, it's fairly similar to the state structure. And then lastly, I wanted to mention the Economic Development Authority. Um, EDA grants are usually 50% match, and they have a lot of stringent stringent requirements. They're obviously not specifically for broadband, but broadband is an allowable uh, type of project for infrastructure. Uh, Congress authorized $1.6 billion in CARES funding. It's a one-time spend, although who knows, maybe there'll be more later. Uh, And it's a much more relaxed requirements. It's 20%. And some of our jurisdictions have jumped all in on this and and, uh, are very hopeful. And the EDA representatives in general have been very positive. But it is a long process and it is a lift. So it's not always... um, It's something that each county has to essentially evaluate whether they want to do this or not. Um, and then let's see, 17, uh, slide 17. This is uh, similar to what you have just discussed in terms of CARES funding that sort of might go from the Congress to the states and then from the states to redistribute for a variety of different types of projects. And it can be a pass-through states CARES Act type. It can be stimulus types or it can be infrastructure um, uh, stimulus opportunities that are likely to come in the future. We don't know exactly what form they will take, but what um, these types of investments share is that they often don't have matching requirements. They often don't care about whether it's rural or urban or completely unserved and with a heavy sort of uh, requirement on documenting that it's absolutely unserved, et cetera, because the logic is often one of stimulus and economic impact. Um, what you get is um, uh, is less of a focus on has there been investment previously, et cetera. Readiness to construct is important, um, may require a county to own the infrastructure. A lot of these is are, are opportunities where the the county applies for the funds, so the county needs to own that infrastructure, not always. Um, and it's important to have some plans ready. These can be conceptual. They don't have to be very detailed. But having something that you can sort of dust off and go, hey, EDA opportunity, let's dust this off uh, with our partner that we just discussed this with. What will it take for you to come back with a refresh quote? That will be great. Stuff like that. And then uh, next steps, last slide. Um, Gauge top tank interests. I know that Megan has a meeting coming up very shortly. Um, See where also, uh, I'm sorry, this uh, uh, with Ardoff, she has a meeting coming up shortly and she was also reaching out to top tank. Um, Solicit interests from Think Big and Atlantic Broadband and Talkie for any areas outside of chop tank footprint, there are some, um, and then evaluate suitability, 
um, when looking for these kind of partnerships, make sure that you don't just look at what's the cheapest option, but what strategically makes most sense. Also, what is the operational experience? You don't want a fly-by-night operation. Uh, and then t the technical and business quality of their proposal and just the ability to meet deadline, you'll be surprised at how much that tells a lot about whether you can work well in a partnership with an organization or not, just their ability to submit what they're supposed to submit on time. And then uh, other than that, I think BIG would be a great partner for something like EDA, uh, et cetera, but only if the county is willing and able to go through a pretty intensive grant process and has the uh, collaboration with, uh, with your economic development person who knows the business community well, because you need to have support from the business community for those kind of grants. And that's that. Over to you, Mike. And we're back in the room. All righty. Well, so I will say, one of the things I guess it's encouraging came out of this, when we started this feasibility study, we basically had one player in the county, and we're coming out on the back end with three to four more players in the county. To, uh, But I did notice one question I had, I guess, and check on it. It looks like the Y Mills area still, even with all the – they were hugely under, unserved, and it didn't look like any of – the options we're going to hit that is that pretty is that about correct or what they're not covered by chop tank for sure I, they probably are in the they might be in the art off but i'm not sure well if that's no there. they weren't that's what i was saying they weren't in the art off either that's why i was kind of curious i mean i guess those poor people down there are just going to have to live in the stone age <laughs> or fixed wireless i guess is really going to probably become the only option down there. yeah but yeah. but it looked like everything else pretty much uh between the combination I mean, there was going to be maybe some little pockets left here and there, but for the most part, it was going to cover about 85, 90 percent of the county when it was all just through all these programs here, it looked like. So yeah. that's awesome. That's good news. We may need some help with grant writing if, uh, <laughs> if we have to move these forward. There's not a grant writer on staff so, so that I know of at the moment. So is the EDA, is that something even, I mean, is that worth going after? It, it, that seems like that was the most arduous process of all of them to get. Um, the RDOF, we just were hands off on the RDOF anyway. That's just the providers. But it, it, do you think the EDA is something that we could? I think it's could... intriguing. I think it definitely. I talked to Heather about it briefly and just mentioned to her that, hey, you know, do you think this would be something that we might be able to partner up and do? And she's she's willing and, and you know, okay. I mean, I know she's busy there's right money now. there. We should go after it. So. But it does require a match. I think it does require, and I think it, did Ziggy correct me if I'm wrong, if it required. 20%, you know, I thought it said, right? It required the county to own it, own the uh, asset. So that's always a contentious point with any provider. They don't want the county to own it. They want to own it. We built it, you know, we put right. it in, we paid for it, but they want it. So they, because they're going to be the ones that are taking care of it and maintaining it the, the rest of its lifetime. So well, we could sell it, right? Do we have to own it after the fact? Or we could only lease it, we can't sell it? Uh, I don't know. If you get a grant for it, I'm not sure how that works. It probably would take a few years to get past that grant period. Right. Okay. Any other questions? No? Okay. Good to go. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Can he hear us? He can hear us. Oh, yeah. okay. okay. All right.
All right, thank you, Megan. Thank you, Ziggy, if you're still there somewhere. Yep. <laughs> All right, commissioners, our uh, fourth and final presentation tonight is the adoption of the FY 2021 operating and capital budget for the county. So we have um, Jonathan Seaman, Brittany Moran. I think Jonathan has a couple, just a couple slides, not too many, for this for this presentation. prepared just a few slides very briefly you, you've seen uh, this before but this will um, present to the public and give sort of an overview in three slides okay um, what uh, what you're getting ready to adopt okay so with that uh, the operating budget is there <clears throat> So, the highlights of FY21, uh, budget was developed and approved during the pandemic, which of course made it interesting and um, kind of unique budget. A decrease of $1.3 million. Uh, the tax rates remain the same in all cases. We are using $2 million from Revenue Stabilization Fund. And we achieved savings from the hiring freeze, there are no new positions added in the budget. There are no employee compensation increases. Uh, we made reductions to the capital budget as well as departmental savings. And the $1.5 million increase in county funding for uh, the public schools. And so, um, Okay. All right. So uh, that might be a little hard to read. But this is basically <clears throat> the changes between FY20 and FY21 in the revenues and expenditures. Oh, that's better. Uh, but basically, you know, the two main sources are property taxes, income taxes, property taxes, uh, still go up. I mean, the property taxes were set uh, before the pandemic, and so we really had those figures as early as January, February time frame. And so the tax bills that will go out in July and August uh, will reflect that. Um, and the biggest decrease is in income taxes, uh, uh, projecting a 38 million dollar decline um, and we'll have to see how that plays out I do think you know we've made it a point of saying that this budget will have to be kind of revisited on a regular basis because the um, you know the effects of the economy are kind of yet to be determined in in detail so we'll kind of keep looking at these numbers as we go along um, in terms of the expenditures, I mentioned the Board of Education at $1.5 million, but there are some other 
areas here that are decreases. Uh, we did make a few investments in technology, so there is an increase there. Uh, we had a decrease in debt service from retiring previous bonds. Uh, I mentioned the agency savings, um, some of the other areas. There are underlying increases in health benefits, which we get every year, and we sort of have to take into account, you know, early in the budget process because we know those are going to go up uh, regardless of what else is happening in the economy. So that's um, the expenditure side. And uh, the capital budget, uh, the budget is $34.8 million, and the bond sale is $12.6 million. Um, you achieved a number of reductions to the capital budget as you went through the process and also deferred uh, some projects, um, and so they were moved to the next year or two in order to um, help with their uh, spending affordability in the current year, in FY21. So just in terms of some of the major projects, $2.4 million for emergency services. The biggest project there is the replacement of the computer-aided dispatch system. $2.6 million for the detention center renovation, which is a multi-year project, so that's really just the first year of that. Um, and then $4.8 million uh, for the Kent Island Library expansion. And $6.7 million total for Board of Education capital projects, uh, including some projects that are we're doing um, with the state, and they've uh, provided funds for the roof replacement at Kent Island High School. And then there's a couple projects for improvements at Sudlersville Elementary School that the state is participating with also. And so that's it. That's it. That's kind of a summary of what's the approved budget for 21. I'd like to make a motion to approve the operating and capital budgets for 2021. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? So first, seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. Thank you very much. Ta-da. All right, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Brittany. Been that brief. All right, commissioners, if you want to go to um, legislative, tab number seven. We have uh, county ordinance 20-02, the establishment of the Queen Anne's County Farmland Preservation Fund. And this is available to be uh, voted on this evening. Motion to adopt county ordinance 2002. Second. Any discussion? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Fire away. So I'm, I'm going to abstain on this one because uh -huh. I think it's a great project, but I don't like the business. I think in general the business of sidelining money, earmarking money for anyone. And I like general funds to stay in competition every year. And that seems to me to be a good principle, but... This is a good project, so I'm going to walk away from this one, but not oppose it's, it. It's farmland money for farmland money, Absolutely. so I, okay. that's why. Yeah. Yep. Very much so. It's, we're taking 
farmland out of production to make clean energy, and we're taking the personal property tax on those arrays and turning around and using it to fund our mouth program, which is our farm preservation in Queen Anne's County. So, yeah, I do think it's a great idea, and 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 uh, I think it's going to be something that maybe, hopefully, the rest of the state will pick up on. We'll see. Uh, any other discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Abstain. There we go. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Commissioners. Uh, and we have one other uh, bill here, County Ordinance Number 20-09 for introduction, and this is to increase the amount of leave time that employees can carry over from 520 to 600 hours per year. Motion to adopt County Ordinance 2009. Second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. Want to introduce? Tom? Want to introduce? Yes. Press and public comments. We got one ordinance to introduce. Got one more. 2009. 2009. Carryover vacation leave. Needs to we be introduced. No, no, we just vote on. I thought we had one to introduce on this. Yeah, okay. that was a 2009. That was the one you should have. Yeah, to introduce that one. Oh, sorry about that. Okay. Never mind. Well, I thought, moving on. <laughs> We're voting on something that hasn't been introduced yet? Okay. <laughs> that's right. She didn't write anything down. That's how long down. that meeting is. <laughs> She's right. a little sneaky. She said, that's wrong. I just introduced it. Jack okay. Introduced Jack introduced it. it. It's introduced. Forget all that you just saw five yeah. minutes ago. And everything else. Let's rewind. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we can go to press and public comment. Now we can go to press and public comment. All right, we do have someone waiting in Zoom, so I'm going to uh, mute our room. Thank you, Commissioners. This is Jay Falstad from Queen Anne's Conservation Association, and thank you for the opportunity to speak. I just wanted to uh, congratulate the Commissioners on their passage of Ordinance 2002, and thank Thanks to Commissioner Moran for introducing it and for the rest of you for passing it. As you know, agriculture is the largest economic sector in Queen Anne's County. Uh, they're in constant need of support. This bill will go a long way towards preserving uh, land. And as Donna Smith has reported over and over again, there's a long list of farmers who want to enroll in the program. And so uh, this will help keep Queen Anne's County farmers uh, productive. It's also good for the environment, and uh, I just couldn't be happier that you passed it. And I just have to say, if this pandemic has taught us anything, it's taught us that local food production uh, and keeping our farmers uh, viable and productive is really uh, as an important element as it gets. So thank you once again, and in closing, thank you for your service uh, and for all that you're doing for the county. Thank you. All right, I'm going to come back over to you, Mike. That was all? Yeah, that was all for our Zoom. We do have a couple emails. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. uh, our first email tonight comes from Katie Brady. She uh, says, please pardon my ignorance if this is already being done. I do, however, offer this suggestion. I believe we need to hold regular public conversations about police, community, and racial relations. I have believed this for many years, and now given the current devastating turmoil in our country, I'm even more convinced. How can I help? 
And then uh, Katie did leave a voicemail with her contact information if anyone would like to reach out. Our second one comes from Annalisa Givens, a Swan Cove Lane resident. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for your time. My residential community on Swan Cove Lane, Chester, Maryland, 21619, is inundated with cars looking for the public entrance and parking to Ferry Point Park, located at 425 Piney Narrows Road, Chester, Maryland, 21619. My street is a dead-end street, so the constant parade of cars turning around in our driveways has caused property to be damaged. Can someone please look into installing installing wayfinding signage on Piney Narrows Road and update driving directions that adequately steer people to the correct public entrance address to Ferry Point Park. Entrance and parking is located at Ferry Point Park's address of 425 Pioneers Road, Chester, Maryland, 21619. Unfortunately, signage is lacking, and we have to battle this issue every day, especially on the weekends. Private residential condos are located on Swan Cove Lane, and there is no park access. This is a continual problem at lost drivers are coming down our dead-end street and are damaging private property as they turn around. Your assistance is greatly appreciated. And that concludes our public comment for tonight. There we go. So we'll close public comment go right to the roundtable. And we're going to start off to the left. I'm good. You're good. Okay. Mr. Wilson, the senior. I'm, I'm You're good. Just as good as he was. There you go. All right. Commissioner Juvenile. I'm actually better than the two of them. Oh, my. Wow. He don't uh, look happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I just want, you know, I think um, I'm always reminded of how grateful I am to live in Queens County, right? This is a great place. And I just, one of those last press appellate comments that we had, um, one of the things that I'm also here for is, is our sheriff's department really trying to be community policing being out there. Um, there was a rally over the weekend. The sheriff's department was there. It was a peaceful and informative rally. People exercising their first amendment right. I think that's a, I think that's a great thing. And uh, I'm, I'm glad the sheriff's department was there to help them with directing traffic and everything was just a great event. Very good. That's it. That's it. That's okay. it. You're good. I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with you on that. Uh, you know, there's you know, th the Eastern Shores is is a great place to live, and I think that uh, you know the the couple of the uh, demonstrations that went on, one in Graysonville, one in Easton, uh, they had another one this evening. I see, uh, and and they're all peaceful and they're all constructive, and, and kudos to those organi organizations that that put this on. Uh, you know, I know that sometimes uh, elected officials like us, you know, we we get scolded if we go. We get scolded if we don't go, uh, but uh, our job is is to run the the day to day operations of this county, and I, I think we're doing a, a very well job with the conditions that we're under with the COVID and everything that's going on about us. Uh, and uh, you know, I I welcome these uh, individuals that they've got a plan, if they got an idea or suggestion, you know, bring it up, and and uh, we'll see what we can do to, to act upon that. Uh, with that being said, you know. Take a motion to adjourn. So moved. Second. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Thank Aye. you very much.